Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 86 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and a general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarvox. I am an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. And we are very lucky today, Luke. We have a guest. Yes, we have a special guest. This is Dr. Fane Frey. Dr. Frey, thanks so much for joining us. Do you want to start by introducing yourself? Sure. I'm um, a board-certified dermatologist practicing in New York. I have been uh, doing so for over three decades. Uh, I've also spent many, many years analyzing skincare products and objectively testing formulations for many years. Uh, And it's a wonderful honor, and I thank you for inviting me on today. We're so happy to have you. And it sounds like us, one of your missions is to make sure that Patients know what over-the-counter stuff is appropriate and what might not be. In fact, you have recently written a book about it called The Skincare Hoax, How You're Being Tricked into Buying Lotions, Potions, and Wrinkle Cream. I did write this book, and I'm proud of this book. Uh, And let me tell you what motivated me to write this book, if I may. Please. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I know, and you all probably know, that the most important information on any skincare product is the ingredient listing. Mm -hmm. And you probably also know that most consumers don't understand the ingredients like isopropyl myristate and triethanolamine and phenoxyethanol. So it's pretty much a blind item. Mm -hmm. Uh, Honestly, I'm not even sure a lot of my colleagues have gotten into the chemistry of skincare products, barring a few ingredients that they may be familiar with. Uh, I also know that people are overwhelmed with choice and confused because the front panel is what we all purchase, um, base our purchases on. And that, to me, is marketing real estate. So mm-hmm. I've seen thousands of patients, I'm sure you folks have too, who feel bad about themselves because of some trivial skin imperfection, perhaps, uh, and the yeah. amount of time, energy, and money they spend on these, uh, these repairing these self-perceived flaws. And these are accomplished women, mind you. Um, I, uh, I was motivated to advocate for the consumer. So I wrote the skin, the skincare hoax. I'm grateful you're doing this kind of work because there has been this sort of nuclear proliferation of skincare lines that has been facilitated by online outlets. And there's direct to consumer retailing through Facebook and Instagram of a lot of boutique products that have sort of mysterious origins and potentially even more mysterious contents. So I think that educating the lay public is an important imperative actually mission for dermatologists at large, and I'm grateful for this tool in the armamentarium. So what tactics do you use to help people understand the landscape, the complex and ever-changing landscape <laughs> of over-the-counter available consumable skincare? Well, first, I think we have to educate the consumer. You know, the, the, the consumer doesn't understand the difference between cosmetic and drug. And this is an important concept. Um, In this country, we have a law, uh, 1938, right? The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was passed, and it defined a drug as something that changes the structure or function of your skin. And if it's a drug, um, it has to go through FDA and get pre-market approval, and it has to prove efficacy and safety. And we have a great system there. Cosmetics, on the other hand, uh, are there to adorn, okay? They really can't, by law, intend to change the structure or function of skin. So this big armamentarium of over-the-counter cosmetics um, 
where people are confused, by definition, are, are not intended to change the structure or function of skin. And manufacturers know this. Uh, so my first, my first uh, goal is to educate the consumer, to let them know that by the mere fact it's a cosmetic limits what it could really do for the skin. That makes sense. I hadn't thought about it that way before, but that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know that that also limits the kind of claims that companies can make about what the product can and can't do. And they have some creative ways of getting around that. Um, also, the sort of fly-by-night online retailers here today, gone tomorrow people don't abide by those rules because they are not following most of the laws. So there are products that are being retailed as cosmetics that make claims that they can't substantiate, like can give a, you know, can help make age spots disappear or something like that, which would be, cha which would be changing the function or structure of the skin. But, you know, if they're unregulated because they're maybe originating in a country outside of ours, those claims are, are labeled into the product. And then somebody makes a complaint, that company dissolves reforms under a different name and continues to sell the same goop in a different bottle. Well, claims are important and there are, it's very, it's very specific. There's legitimate claims that are appropriate for drugs. Like you'll rarely see on a cosmetic gets rid of your wrinkles. What you'll, what you'll see is decreases the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles. See, that's compliant language for a cosmetic. It doesn't get rid of them, but just by hydrating. So it might be a great moisturizer. You take a raisin, you pump water into it. You have a grape temporarily. Let me ask you, is that anti-wrinkle? <laughs> Not really. No. Okay. So that's that what they're allowed to do that. So the claims are very compliant and, and there are, there are compliance and regulators for these big companies so that they don't make these kinds of, these kinds of mistakes. Um, again, so what I mm -hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that cosmetic companies advocate for themselves and they should, right? They're advocating for their shareholders and the media is advocating for the media. It wants the attention and there is very little uh, advocating going on for the consumer. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. And what I usually tell my patients is stuff like, generally, you can keep it simple and that's fine. So everybody should probably be using a sunscreen. For kiddos, I recommend mineral-based sunscreens because, you know, those recent studies that chemical-based sunscreens get absorbed into the blood. I say we don't <laughs> know that they do anything bad in the blood, but just <laughs> to make sure, for kids, I recommend the zinc, titanium, possibly iron oxide stuff. And then probably everybody who's not pregnant or breastfeeding should be using a retinol. You know, there's inexpensive over-the-counter adapalene, for example. And then, of course, we can prescribe some. And then, you know, good moisturizers. I like plain old petroleum jelly. It's kind of messy. So I think, you know, shea butter, coconut oil, other good options as well. And then all of the other stuff that people use, oftentimes they'll bring them in and I'll say, well, I don't really think this is bad. You know, it's got ingredients in here that look like it could do what you want. But my suspicion is that it's overpriced. And that's sort of where I leave my discussion of over-the-counter products. Uh -huh. Is there more that you tell people? Well, first of all, I don't want to villainize the skincare industry. It's a fantastic industry, and it really does make great products. It makes great sunscreens, which we all know is probably the single best product to prevent skin damage, sun, skin cancer, and good moisturizers, which we all know hydrated skin is best for patients, especially those with eczema and probably psoriasis and seborrhea. There's a lot of conditions where moisturized or hydrated skin is optimal. Um, but with that being said, the, the marketing tactics that are being used to mislead, um, a great formulation, a well-formulated moisturizer, uh, it does not guarantee its success. It's the marketing that guarantees its success. 
So I want patients to be so mindful of that marketing and so mindful of the influences that that marketing is having on them that they're dangerous. That they're really dangerous consumers. I like that idea, dangerous consumer. It's yes. kind of like the Ariana Grande song, "Dangerous Woman," but a little bit more <laughs> inclusive and also arming people to enter the healthcare and skincare space. Well, and I'm grateful you're addressing like. So there's sort of the legitimate cosmetics world that, you know, L'Oreal, Roche-Posay, companies that have a tradition of safety and, and, you know, a presence in the industry for a long time. And then there's these little startup things that have flourished in the era of, of, you know, internet consumerism. And, you know, some of those I've actually had patients bring to my office and the ingredients, if they're even accurately what's in the product, Mm -hmm. are somewhat distressing. I had a patient that had something that was for itching and one of the top labeled ingredients in it was actually toxicodendron extract. So it was like poison ivy extract. And predictably sure. the patient's rash was getting worse. But when I looked up the kind of company to try to see if I could find any more information about it, it had already been dissolved and she'd only bought the product six months prior. So I know that there's also some entry into the healthcare space because of the lower purchasing um, power required by smaller entities that may even be less regulated than traditional cosmetics. So I think educating patients about those as well is, is very important. So I'm grateful for that um, sort of step towards helping our patients be more savvy consumers. Yes, I actually recommend the, rep, you know, the, the bigger companies. They, these bigger companies have the resources. Um, they have the resources to get better ingredients, uh, better testing, not that a lot of testing is done, depending on what budgets are allowed, but these better, these bigger um, manufacturers, and they also have a reputation to uphold, by the way. Keep in mind that almost 200 different brands are owned by only seven companies, Yeah, right? So it's really a, it's, it's a big industry. It's a growing industry. Um, but again, it's a blind item because the consumer doesn't really know what's in it. They don't understand the ingredient listing. And the marketing real estate on the front of the bottle is really a fair game for anyone to be had. Uh, and, uh, so anyway, there's a need, there's a need for the, for this type of education of the, of the consumer. How do you feel about people making their own cosmetic products at home? Well, again, the problem with that is minimal testing, minimal preservation. Um, any water-based product is going to grow mold and bacteria probably within 11, 12 days. Um, I'm not sure that's a, a wise thing to be putting cosmetics around your mouth and your nose and your eyes that is contaminated and the, you know, the preservatives in or the lack thereof in these homegrown DIY concoctions. So I don't normally recommend that. Do you find that the industry has gotten grumpy with you, Dr. Frey, for <laughs> for all of this work? Actually, just the opposite. I have, uh, I, first I should tell you, I don't sell any products and I don't work for any skincare manufacturer. Uh, but I do have a lot of them come to my office and we talk. I speak to the cosmetic chemists and I like the big guys because, again, they have the resources. I have gotten a lot of um, encouragement from colleagues, in particular ones that aren't selling so much or pushing their cosmetics again in their office. And I'm not necessarily against that. But again, are they really advocating for their patients or are they being influenced by their profits? And so um, I've had the opposite. Patients, uh, friends, family, consumers have absolutely embraced me. I have been very, very welcomed by the news media and not as welcomed by the beauty industry for obvious reasons. Yeah, there's a lot of money invested in sort of magnifying small flaws and then getting people to spend a lot of time and energy on them, like you said. 
And I do think that there's there's a move towards more inclusive advertising, which I think is a helpful step mm -hmm. because the traditional um, sort of European ethnocentric version of beauty that has been the bastion of what everyone has been told to aspire to in the United States for the past 50 years is starting to be more inclusive of people with different kinds of skin types, different kinds of hair, different kinds of beauty aesthetics. Do you see the um, kind of shift towards that inclusiveness, kind of improving options for patients of all kinds? I do, but keep in mind, um, the skin skin companies advocate for themselves. You, you know that expression, why did Willie Sutton rob the bank? Because that's where the money was. Remember, <laughs> these companies are there to make a profit and that's they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I don't mean to be offensive to anyone, but the big money in products is not in the inner cities. Right. That's not why they go there. Now, I love inclusivity, but to me, the answer would be let's educate everybody. Let's educate everybody of all different diversities so that they know. And it's a very consumer driven industry. If women didn't buy eye creams, companies wouldn't make them. So if we can educate the consumers as to maybe emphasize more wellness rather than beauty, uh, I think that would make a huge shift in in, you know, inclusivity and what companies made. And I'm not against the beauty industry, by the way. I can give you my analogy to that if you'd like it. I would like it. We, we, we love a good analogy here at Dermosphere Podcast. <laughs> okay. My analogy with the beauty industry is that of like, uh, it's, uh, it reminds me of sprinkles on an ice cream cone. So sprinkles are fun and sprinkles are playful and they're colorful, but you don't need them, right? So I feel this way about the beauty industry. I have nothing wrong with women who want to buy something because it's fun and it makes them feel, you know, it's beautiful. It's colorful, I should say, and it makes them feel good. That's all well and good. But to think that that's going to really improve your health or well-being, in my opinion, is, is, is a, a fallacy. And so I'm not against the beauty industry. I just like to keep it in perspective. And you are for empowering consumers. I'm for empowering consumers and letting them know that most consumers, especially women, I pick women in particular, because there are so many accomplished women in particular who really feel bad about themselves. And so I want to remind women that you're already fabulous, despite these perceived flaws. Number two, there's no correlation between the cost of a product and what you pay and, and its efficacy. So you don't, you, a simple regimen that's inexpensive is, can be just as effective as those fancy expensive ones. Um, and um, those are kind of my, my, tidbit reminders to, to, you know, women. I do have a website, Fryface, where I, again, I don't sell anything just to help people pick product. And it's usually these bigger companies, the products that are on the website, Fryface, F-R-Y-F-A-C-E.com. There's a product selector just to help people pick product before they go to their big drugstore and all to make a good selection. I test the products in my office. That's awesome. What a nice resource to offer to patients. I think that we could make you a theme song. You could be like, so Dr. Faith, <laughs> you make me feel like a dangerous <laughs> consumer. Sing it, Michelle. <laughs> All right. It. Well, that's great. I want to close by quoting you to yourself. <laughs> this is a quote from you, apparently. Kindness matters. Health matters. Accomplishments matter. None of those things come in a tube or bottle. And I think that's a very empowering statement. I'm going to put that on my wall. I love that. Go. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Frey. Anything you'd like to close with? You can quote me to myself if you no, like. No, thank you very much for having me. And uh, of course, I'll, I'll plug if it's uh, possible. The book is available for pre-order on Amazon.com, The Skincare Hoax. Hope you all learned something from it. Excellent. Good luck with everything. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for being with us.
That was a fantastic discussion about how to help our consumers, our patients navigate the landscape that is quite complex and ever-changing of over-the-counter skincare. Speaking of which, there has also been a bit of a nuclear proliferation of online venues selling different products for hair loss. But how do we know which one's the best one, right? People have always asked this question, what one works the best? So a couple of authors undertook this endeavor. Um, This is an article out of the JAMA Dermatology, and we have article here on relative efficacy of minoxidil and the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors in androgenetic alopecia, treatment of male patients, a network medical meta-analysis. This is by chief authors Adita Gupta and Mary uh, Bamimore, who is a PhD, very cool. And they are associated with Metaprobe Research, Inc., London, Ontario, Canada, as well as the Division of Dermatology, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto in Ontario, Canada. As we know, there are knowledge gaps about the relative efficacy of the three most commonly used drugs for androgenetic alopecia, which are minoxidil and the two 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, dutasteride and finasteride. They wanted to examine the relative efficacy of any dose and administration route of minoxidil, dutasteride and finasteride for the treatment of male androgenetic alopecia. So they did a systematic search on PubMed in, in March of 2021 with no date restrictions, and they looked into articles that investigated monotherapy with any dose and administration route of those three drugs. They then, after this meta-analysis, were able to search through and find 848 records that then they pared down to 23 studies which were eligible for the quantitative analysis. Sorry, yeah, the quantitative analysis. In this, they gathered data on the mean standard difference, and we remember that the standard difference is literally just subtracting the one value from the next one. So it's it's a relatively straightforward mathematical concept. And so a standard difference of zero would be no change. So no difference. A standard difference that is negative would show that there's a diminution of that risk or effect from the use of the medication. And a positive standard difference would show a gain or presence of effect with the medication. So they utilized the Bayesian Network Medical sorry Meta Analysis. It's hard not to say medical analysis, and they also used league tables and surface under the cumulative ranking curve values to examine the relative efficacy of these different interventions. Their endpoints were change in total and terminal hair count after 24 and 48 weeks of therapy, and these four endpoints were quantified in hairs per square centimeter using photometric analysis. Very objective. Very, very objective. A lot of hair loss studies are somewhat subjective because it's difficult in some ways, especially before a lot of these technologies were really honed and sort of refined for their use in in the evaluation of hair growth. A lot of the changes were, you know, evaluator assessments or patient satisfaction assessments, which are certainly important, but not quite as objective as the data of literal hairs per square centimeter. Not as objective, but some might argue more important because if my hair has more hairs per square centimeter, but I look the same, then I'm still not going to be happy with my treatment outcome. Exactly. And we also know in the hair world that some of the treatments help improve the hair cosmesis without changing the actual quantifiable metrics. So the total hair count is the same, but perhaps the volume or manageability improves with certain therapies and treatments. So all of these things are important things to take into consideration. But if you really are asking the question, what is more effective in regrowing hair? This is the way to do it. Science. Science. For the win. Yes. So I will kind of skip to the punchline in that the most efficacious treatment that they found was dutasteride, 0.5 milligrams per day. 
that was significantly more effective um, in terms of the total and terminal hair counts. The total and terminal hair counts are different metrics because we have different types of hair on our scalp. So if you're a hair nerd like I am, you know that we don't just have a whole bunch of single follicular units with one single hair shaft coming out of each one on our scalp. They're really more of a family portrait, every single one of them. So they have their little sebaceous glands, and there's some little vellus hairs, and then there's a number of terminal hairs in a healthy scalp coming out of the single follicular orifice. The total hair count would take into assessment those vellus and sort of intermediate hairs, whereas the terminal hair count is only going to count the terminal hairs. Both of those contribute to hair volume, bulk, and scalp coverage. So both are important metrics. So at 24 weeks, with um, the greatest increase in total hair count, so all all types of hair, was dutasteride 0.5 milligrams per day, which was significantly more effective than the next comer up, um, which was finasteride. And the finasteride had you know, some supremacy over the oral minoxidil. And then, of course, then the topical forms of minoxidil kind of came in a little bit later in the analysis, which sort of makes sense. Um, there's a little back and forth in the way that they did these assessments, and some of this by necessity. Different studies would have looked at different treatment periods and different dosages of drugs, and direct comparisons are sometimes difficult to have in the same study, so that kind of creates some of the power of the network meta-analysis. The... Other cool things that kind of came out of this, this article was thinking about why dutasteride might be more efficacious than finasteride. And I think that that actually is a little bit of the lead that you don't want to bury in this particular circumstance. So dutasteride is actually, this is pimpable for sure, a hundred times more potent in inhibiting the type one isoenzyme of 5-alpha reductase and is three times more potent in inhibiting the type 2 isoenzyme. So there's two isoenzymes for 5-alpha reductase that are relevant for hair loss. And, and as a reminder, 5-alpha reductase converts testosterone into dihydrotestosterone, which is really the active formulation, certainly when it comes to hair. And both finasteride and dutasteride, those types of medicines are 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Yes, and there are other 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Saw palmetto, for example, is a natural 5-alpha reductase inhibitor that's used in a lot of over-the-counter productions, either orally or topically, to help inhibit the synthesis of the dihydrotestosterone, which can be quite toxic to growing hair follicles in genetically susceptible individuals. Other things like stinging nettle are also used for the same purposes to sort of decrease the effect of that particular hormone on the hair. And the good thing about impairing this enzyme is unless you are trying to create a male body in the process of, of development, um, most people will go through, of course, in puberty or, or other ways that you might go through different um, developmental cycles. Unless you're trying to do those steps, that super testosterone, that dihydroxytestosterone is not really necessary. So inhibiting it generally is without significant effects for most people. Now, we do have to take into consideration younger male patients who seem to be more impacted specifically with finasteride, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. So the pimpable content, again, dutasteride is 100 times more potent in inhibiting the type 1 isoenzyme of 5-alpha reductase, three times more potent in inhibiting type 2 isoenzyme. We are not sponsored by dutasteride. Um, finasteride. And neither is this paper, by the way. And no neither is this paper. Yes, which we always love in Dermosphere. We love an a non-conflicted paper. It makes us a happy camper. So finasteride, con in contradistinction, only inhibits the type 2 isoenzyme. 
Um, but dutasteride is not approved for, by the FDA for androgenetic alopecia. And one of the important and also very pimpable reasons for this is that dutasteride has a much, much longer half-life than finasteride. So dutasteride's half-life is five weeks. That is one of the major reasons why we really try not to use it in women of reproductive capacity, because five weeks in reproductive time is very serious. Finasteride having a six-hour half-life is a lot more stoppable and, and you can sort of inhibit uh, or you can address its potential effects much more rapidly than dutasteride. That long half-life that dutasteride has actually allows for some flexibility with dosing protocols. Um, and it is, I think, notable that dutasteride has been approved for the treatment of male androgenetic alopecia in Japan and South Korea, but it has not been approved in the United States. Data on the effects of these 5-alpha reductase inhibitors on the health and well-being specifically of men hasn't been as well studied in dutasteride as it has in finasteride. And I do think that's an important thing to bring forward, especially if you're treating a young male patient, because we certainly want to inform our patients of any possible side effects, especially when we're talking about treating something that is quite impactful on a person's well-being and self-esteem, but is potentially less impactful than Sex, sexual dysfunction or depression. So we do have to, you know, put the hair and the concerns over the hair in the proper place in the hierarchy of needs, if you will. Um, I thought that they did a very nice job of going through the analysis to look at the kind of different ways that these medications can be beneficial, as well as um, kind of comparing the different modalities for application. As with any large network meta-analysis that's dealing with multiple different papers with different methodologies, there's some back and forth between which medication comes out as the true leader. Um, so in some of the parameters, if you're looking at total versus terminal hair count at 24 or 48 weeks, dutasteride, finasteride, and minoxidil switch places a couple of times. But the general overall theme and the strongest signal is for dutasteride to be the most powerful, followed by finasteride at the 5 milligram strength. Then after that, the 5 milligram minoxidil then the one milligram finasteride, and then predictably the 5% minoxidil solution topically, and then the 2% minoxidil solution topically. Um, the 2% solution is less likely to be successful in male patients with androgenetic alopecia, possibly because of challenges with compliance, and the authors astutely bring this up. The fact that applying the liquid solutions to the scalp can cause changes to the texture or manageability of the scalp hair and can somewhat discourage people from using them regularly. And it is certainly simpler for people to just take a pill every day. The uh, other things that I thought were great pimpable content out of this article were sort of the discussion of the mechanism of action for minoxidil, which is challenging partially because we partially don't know how it works. We surmise that it has something to do with blood flow, but we don't know for sure exactly why it increases hair counts. We do have some thoughts as to why it increases the duration of antigen, which is another potential benefit of minoxidil. In Remember, that antigen it, is the growing phase. The growing phase of the hair, yes. It prolongs the antigen phase of the growth cycle of the hair follicle by activation of hair follicle potassium channels. So potassium channels getting activated by minoxidil helps that hair grow nice and long. And so we do like to, to kind of emphasize those little bits of pimpable content when we have the opportunity. Now, meta-analyses do have some limitations. They cannot determine causality. And so while we presume that these improvements that we're seeing in the mean total hair counts are related to the medication, we cannot directly make that claim. They also looked at this through different method methods. So they looked at both the what they call the sucra, which is the surface under the cumulative ranking curve. And this is a way to sort of compare 
one metric to another across studies that weren't done in the same setting. And so these SUCRA, these surface under the cumulative ranking curve values were able to be interpreted and it basically a higher percentage number is, is more beneficial potentially than a lower percentage number. But then they also looked at the total hair count and the standard difference between those in the different preparations for both total and terminal hairs at 24 and 48 weeks. There was also a very nice commentary written about this article that kind of went over some of the high points of it. That was by author Kathleen, uh, sorry, Kathleen, I'm sorry, Huang and Marianne Senna. Yeah, and, and the title is Hair Are the Rankings. Which is already in the running for like the funniest title for the Dermies coming up in 2022. Uh, this is out of the Department of Dermatology, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and the Department of Dermatology, Mass General in Boston for the respective two authors. And in this response, they do highlight the prevalence of androgenetic alopecia. It is quite common, affecting 50% of men by the age of 50 and up to 90% of men in their lifetime. And they pointed also that it moderately impairs health-related quality of life and may be associated with low self-esteem and depression. Now, this isn't in every patient who has androgenetic alopecia. A lot of patients who have androgenetic alopecia rock that very nice, very handsome head with a lot of confidence and swagger and take that just right into the 20th century. It looks fantastic. But yeah, there are off some... the top of my head, so to speak, Jean-Luc Picard. Exactly. Very Dwayne handsome. The Rock gentleman. Johnson, Vin mm -hmm. Diesel. Mm -hmm. That guy that was in the transporter. He's scary and looks very strong. I can't remember his name. Um, but lovely, lovely and very alopecia head. Looks very handsome. So there are many different ways to treat this. As our previous guest was saying, Dr. Fry was discussing that, you know, if there is a need, industry will find a way to try to meet that because that's where you make money. Why do you rob the bank? That's where the money is. Why do you make a product? Because people will buy it. So there's a lot of these different products. Topical minoxidil, oral finasteride, one milligram, and low-level light therapy are the only FDA-approved treatments for androgenetic alopecia. But there's a lot of off-label use of oral minoxidil, oral dutasteride, and higher doses of oral finasteride or topical minoxidil in the literature. And so I think it's a timely review. We know... Oh, sorry. Did you have a question? Nope. Just something in my throat. Uh, we know that there is some signal for decreased libido, erectile dysfunction, and decreased ejaculatory volume reduction in sperm count, testicular pain, depression, and gynecomastia in young adult male patients treated with finasteride. There does seem to be a decreased risk for prostate cancer in patients taking finasteride. However, if patients do develop prostate cancer, it may be diagnosed at a higher grade. A lot of thought leaders in this field think that you're probably kind of weeding out the weaker skin cancers that are dependent on dihydrotestosterone to grow when you have patients on the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. And so if you get something that breaks through that inhibition, it's a really big bad. And that might be why we see the phenomenon of those detected cancers being at a higher grade. They also wonder if that might be related to tissue sampling artifact. And it is also important to discuss with the patient that any 5-alpha reductase inhibitor can decrease prostate-specific antigen screening laboratory results. So that may impact patients' screening capabilities. There have been two recent studies that reported increased rates of suicide, depression, and anxiety in male patients only receiving oral finasteride for androgenetic alopecia. I actually did look at these studies, and the effects were more significant for younger males. They did have trouble separating out the confounders, um, including the fact that more severe androgenetic alopecia, especially in younger patients, may be present in a comorbid fashion with more depression and potentially sexual dysfunction. So there's some 
there's some intricacies that need to be teased out there. Teased out. We're talking about hair. The hair puns just keep coming. And we also discussed in one of our very early episodes that the possible association with sexual dysfunction is also controversial. I personally don't believe it. I think people just like to blame their medicines on stuff. I, I think that it's partially because such a big deal has been made out of it. We've also discussed on this podcast previously the nocebo effect. So the placebo effect being that we give somebody a sugar pill and tell them that's going to make your headache better and they feel better, even though there was nothing in the medicine that would have done that. The nocebo effect, similarly, we tell patients this medicine might give you a headache, they're more likely to get a headache. This medicine might make you break out more. They think they break out more. This medicine might cause sexual dysfunction. It might, you know, interfere with the mental processes that a young gentleman needs to engage in to have optimal function. So I feel like that is something that we may also be creating some of the issue by potentially overemphasizing the side effect. However, you do have to discuss it because it's labeled into the product. And we certainly don't ever want patients to feel as if information is being withheld from them in any kind of a malicious way. Um, minoxidil is a excellent medicine for hair loss. It's been approved by the FDA since 1998 for the treatment of androgenetic alopecia in men. The um, medication, as we've also discussed in this podcast previously, kind of grew out of the observation that adult male patients being treated for severe hypertension with systemic minoxidil got hairy everywhere. And they decided, woo, we could use this topically. How fantastic. That story played itself again, played itself out again recently in the press because in India, there was a manufacturing error that caused minoxidil to be packaged into baby medication for reflux. And so there was an epidemic of very hairy babies in India because they were being given minoxidil of all things instead of like gas X. So that kind of brought that potential side effect to the fore. Now, certainly uh, an item of concern if you're accidentally giving minoxidil to babies like happened with this manufacturing area, there is a risk at high dose for um, pericardial effusion. So pericardial effusion and cardiac tamponade. There has been, I believe, one recent case of that reported with low dose oral minoxidil. It is very um, rare if it is associated with that particular dosage regimen. It is something that I always clear with a cardiologist if a patient has a cardiovascular history to make sure that there's no um, concern for exacerbating any existing heart condition. The low doses in general do avoid the undue cardiac risk, and it may address the issue of decreased compliance with topical formulations because of those changes to texture and manageability. Um, low-dose minoxidil can cause generalized hypertrichosis. Some people may experience tachycardia on low doses, and you have to be cautious about the potential for postular, postural hypotension and edema. We talked about the minoxidil mechanism of action for alopecia. Again, we don't really know. A lot of people surmise it has to do with blood flow. And then that very nice pimpable content that we increase the antigen growth phase cycle again by its effect of activating the potassium channels. Minoxidil is not a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. It doesn't affect dihydrotestosterone levels. So sexual adverse events, depression, gynecomastia, not seen with low-dose oral minoxidil use. I also find a lot of patients are kind of uncomfortable with hormones, especially if they have a personal history of any kind of hormonal-related cancer. And so minoxidil can be a helpful choice under those circumstances. The comparative studies for these androgenetic alopecia remedies is somewhat lacking. So this meta-analysis is a welcome addition to the literature. And I think that they came up with a ranking that makes sense scientifically, where the dutasteride as the most powerful 5-alpha reductase inhibitor came out as sort of the winner of the, of the field, followed by the higher dose finasteride, and then higher, the higher low dose minoxidil of 5 milligrams daily, then the 1 milligram of um, finasteride, 
and then topical minoxidil is actually beat out the 0.25 milligram dose of the oral minoxidil. That lowest dose of oral minoxidil was the first one described in the literature and was a pioneering paper in how we treat androgenetic alopecia. So we certainly don't want to un underemphasize the importance of that piece of um, scientific information in that literature, but I think that we do get more effectiveness at the higher doses of the low-dose oral minoxidil. So I thought this was an excellent pair of articles, and they made an excellent point in the editorial about the fact that there are more direct-to-consumer companies treating male androgenetic alopecia. So informing the patients about both the potential risks and benefits of these medications is a very important step in our effort to create dangerous, informed consumers. So... Some months ago, I noticed that I had some receding hairline on my bilateral frontotemporal scalp, and I thought, I'm a dermatologist, I don't have to put up with this. So I am now on finasteride, one milligram daily, and minoxidil, 2.5 milligrams BID. And then after reading this article, I was like, well, should I be taking dutasteride instead of finasteride? Maybe, but this editorial also does a good job pointing out the limitations of the meta-analysis. And there was a previous study, it looks like it was actually the same first author, that found no statistically significant difference in the relevant relative efficacies of finasteride versus dutasteride. I think they, they did try to kind of explain that in the original article, the change for the surface under the curve measurements, and that they found that that might not be the best way to monitor the efficacy of the hair growth formulations in comparison to the hair counts. And that might be why they had a little bit of a different um, presentation of the data in this article. But I do think that both of the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors can be beneficial. And, you know, where it comes to dutasteride versus finasteride, we don't know what the risk really of sexual dysfunction and depression and things for dutasteride is for patients with hair loss. That hasn't been studied as well. That drug is more more significantly used in benign prostatic hypertrophy. If it gets approved in the United States for male pattern hair loss, it might get more studies. I'm actually hoping there will be more studies coming from Korea and Japan since it is approved for use there for androgenetic alopecia. And well, then, I was left feeling that it probably just didn't matter that much. So <laughs> I'm just going to coast. Well, and I think that the finasteride is a very reasonable medication to take. And, you know, the, the dutasteride... Um, some people get concerned about breast cancer with these 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. So I actually looked into that too. They haven't really studied breast cancer in women very much in these medications because these medications are traditionally used and prescribed for men. In men, it does seem to decrease the risk of breast cancer in an interesting way because they're looking at progesterone metabolites and their effect on cancer cell lineages. And it seems that the 5-alpha metabolites of progesterone, which also can be metabolized by 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, can be promoters of growth of the cancer cells. So interfering with that actually creates more of the four pregnenolones, um, which seem to be anti-tumorigenic. Now, this is all kind of based off of some in vitro research, but I think that there's potentially some reassurance there. Hopefully, as these medicines are used more broadly for hair loss patients, these kinds of safety studies can be done to help us understand better any, any risks that we aren't currently aware of, but I am encouraged by their ability to quantify the variable use of these medications and excited to see how they play out further in um, more studies. Well, I think we both kind of like treating hair loss. 
So I want to talk about something I don't like to do, which is okay. to monitor labs on isotretinoin. This is one of my most soapboxy subjects, and we've talked about it once or twice before. But this is a new article out of JAMA Dermatology called Isotretinoin Laboratory Monitoring in Acne Treatment, a Delphi Consensus Study. All right, so maybe we'll get some clarity about what to do. Authors include Eric Shia and Arash Mastigimi. Shout out to Arash. Um, on the Topical podcast, we were guests over there once upon a time. Also, shout out to another co-author, Julian Mann, whom I know because she did her fellowship training at the same spot I did. So this was 22 acne experts from around the world, and this was a four-round Delphi process. We've talked about the Delphi process before. Basically, you get a bunch of smart experts together, not physically usually, electronically these days, and you send them all questionnaire and then they fill out the questionnaire and then you do it again and you do it again and you do it again and then you figure out where people agree and where they disagree. I'm actually collaborating on my first Delphi consensus right now and it's an interesting experience. It really is. Like it feels the onus feels very heavy. So I'm very carefully considering every question that I answer. So I make sure it's just not an off the cuff thing. What's your Delphi study on? I'm not sure I'm allowed to say. So I'll tell you oh. later. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the consensus is to check ALT and triglycerides at baseline and at max dose. There it is. Bam. <laughs> um, they say the consensus is to not check CBC, BMP, CRP, or a full LFT panel. And there was no consensus on AST. So the isotretinoin or Accutane drug label, originally released in 1982, recommends laboratory monitoring of lipids and liver function tests at weekly or bi-weekly intervals, quote, until the response to Accutane has been established, end quote. Obviously, we're not doing that anymore. I think uh, people who've listened to me soapbox about this before know that I really don't like checking labs on isotretinoin. I don't think abnormalities tend to mean anything, and oftentimes they self-correct when we recheck a couple weeks later, especially in my young, healthy adolescent population. If you're a 250-pound, 28-year-old man, then I'll probably want to check some labs. If you're a 12-year-old skinny girl, then I think they're less useful. But here we have some consensus guidelines anyway. Um, to support my feeling, they do point out that recent research has shown abnormalities identified on routine tests are rare and often do not impact treatment course. And for most cases, abnormalities are mild and transient. Once upon a time, people used to potentially check creatine kinase, CK. They say given rare reports of rhabdomyolysis, some of which are also associated with strenuous physical activity, there may be a lower threshold to test this in certain populations such as competitive athletes. I don't think I've checked CK unless people have some really significant myologies or something with it. I'm still not sure why we are testing at all, aside from the fact that it's in the package insert. We've talked about pancreatitis a little bit. They comment on this issue. So pancreatitis in the setting of known is rare. In many cases are not actually associated with hypertriglyceridemia. Similarly, there is limited evidence that isotretinone is associated with meaningful hepatic injury, and one study found liver function testing abnormalities are just as common prior to initiation of isotretinone as on therapy. And I've talked to hepatologists before who also have told me that ALT and AST just sort of fluctuate naturally a lot more than other lab values, so you could just be catching them at a high time. Mm. So I still don't, I really don't want to check anybody. I just don't. But now that we have <laughs> consensus guidelines, I suppose I will generally at least offer them to families and we can discuss the pros and cons, ALT and triglycerides, before you start and at max dose. They do say that more routine monitoring 
or reduced monitoring, ding, 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 should be considered on a case-by-case basis. So I will consider more reduced monitoring more strongly than I will consider more routine monitoring. But there you have it. We've got uh, 22 really smart people who are acne experts who agreed that this is the thing to do with isotretinoin. You know, I think that decreasing the frequency of lab monitoring for most patients might also have the added benefit of making the medicine seem less terrifying to patients and their parents. Um, The fact that we're checking labs monthly on this medication makes it seem very, very, very serious. And, you know, certainly we want to be cautious in patients and we want to use our diagnostic acumen and we don't want to cause harm for, you know, treating something that is, while significant and can leave permanent scarring, not life-threatening. You know, acne is is a significant inflammatory disease and it can leave scars that can last a lifetime and affect psychosocial well-being and things like that. But it isn't heart failure or kidney failure. And the the seriousness of a monthly lab check, I think, is sometimes something that makes patients a little bit trepidatious or their or their parents. So I, I'm all for saving healthcare dollars wisely and also not doing unnecessary blood draws on children. <laughs> you know, all of those seem like good things to do. I think that if you have, of course, those extenuating circumstances where you've got an adult patient, I find adult patients are have more trouble on Accutane than children do relatively consistently. And I think that's partially because adults have more bad habits that might affect things like their liver and triglycerides. But also, you know, their bodies have been around longer. So if there's something that's just a little wonky, a medicine's more able to unbalance it than a child that's got a more robust reserve to operate off of. Um, but I think that's a very reasonable and and logical way to monitor labs on Accutane. So did 22 other very smart people. So I like it. My hope is that next year they come out with consensus guidelines that say we don't have to check at all, assuming you're a healthy weight and you're under 25 or something. But... All right. There's my call. Revisit this issue in a year or two, everybody. I like this. I like this plan. Well, speaking of challenging dogma, we have another iconoclast to review. So we have a lovely article here that is out of the JAD by authors. Um, Senior author is Daniel Eisen. I've had the privilege of hearing him speak live at the Alabama Dermatologic Society. And he gave a fantastic talk about where you place sutures and how you use them and the way that it affects wound cosmesis. And I think this, I think, is a significant interest of his. So he's the senior author. The first author is Allison Winkle, and she has such a beautiful last name. I was like, I think there's another Winkle with that exact spelling, if I'm correct. And I was I was right about that. So Susan Winkle, who's a fabulous dermatologist. Um, this is her daughter, Allison Winkle, who is also a beautiful young dermatologist. And they are out of Sacramento and Los Alamos. Los Angeles, California, with the University of California, Davis, Department of Dermatology, and the University of Southern California, Los Angeles, Department of Dermatology. So they wanted to look at the aesthetic outcome of simple cuticular suture distance from the wound edge on the closure of linear wounds on the head and neck. And they did a randomized evaluator blinded spit, sorry, split wound comparative effect trial. So they actually had adult patients who had head and neck skin cancer, and they utilized a randomization tool to pick which side of a scar based off of the definition of either superior to, I think, the right of the surgeon. Uh, Yeah, sorry, to the left and or superior to the surgeon as site A, and then B was just the opposite side. And then those were randomized to having the sutures placed either two or five millimeters from the wound edge. The reason they chose those two numbers is that those are the extremes of the range that is recommended in most surgical textbooks. So that the sutures are placed between two and five millimeters from the wound edge. And they wanted to see if there was one or the other that was better. 
In order to do this, they use the patient and observer scar assessment scale, which scores for cutaneous sutures, uh, sorry, for cutaneous scars, and kind of evaluates different parameters of them, like pliability, vascularity, appearance, texture. And they looked at the two versus five millimeter groups to see if there was any difference. They had 50 patients that they enrolled and evaluated and then randomized in this evaluator-blinded split scar study that was powered to find a difference between these two different measurements from the wound edge for the suture placement. And then they evaluated the POSAS scores for scar uh, for their scar as well as their scar width in three months post-operative, which is felt to represent a good evaluation of what the wound will be like in a year after surgery. So the long story short is there wasn't any significant difference between two and five millimeter spacing from the wound edge. Hooray! Yay! Do whatever you want. Exactly. Which has often been the theme of these articles. Um, the spacing from the wound edge, the spacing from each other, the technique used to place the suture. Many of these things that we kind of maybe obsess a little bit over might not have as significant of an impact on wound cosmesis as we might think that they do. And one of the things that Dr. Eisen always ad advocates for, which I 100% agree with, is that the most important sutures you place are your deeps because those really are what is going to determine the cosmesis of the scar. And he actually advocates in many cases that you don't always need tops. You know, tops sometimes are useful and are helpful to align the skin surface edges, but sometimes you can get a great closure without tops if your deeps are properly placed, and that can sometimes even improve the scar cosmesis. So they did point out that these were linear repairs on the head and neck after the extirpation of cutaneous malignancies. This did result in a homogeneously elderly white patient population. So they point out that this might not be generalizable to all skin types. Uh, I thought that the study was very well designed. Of the 55 patients that they initially assessed for eligibility, they excluded five, they randomized 50, and they only lost one to follow up, which is quite admirable. I thought that they did a very nice job with that. They also measured the scar width using kind of a fun technique where they marked the scar itself with gentian violet, and then they placed tape onto the scar and then they take, they take the tape off and put that on a white piece of paper. And then it is digitally analyzed to calculate the scar dimensions. So I thought that that was also quite um, objective and well done in a way that could control for like variances in measurement from person to person. They did also use a ruler to measure the distance for placement of the stitches. I can't imagine how much time that took, but they did do that. So they kind of measured out the two versus the five millimeters to ensure that the sutures were all placed at the uniform distance they had agreed upon. And um, they did notice a few things that might still impact the choice of suture placement for physicians. Um, one of those was patient perception. So in a different study, there was an outcome that found that patients perceived the surgeon's skill with two millimeter suture spacing as inferior to those with six millimeter wound spacing. And I don't know if that's because they can see the stitches better, so they think that more work was done, or, or what exactly it was that the patients were perceiving about that that made them feel that there was greater quality to the sutures when they were further away from the wound edge. I also did find that it was interesting that the level of training for the surgeon ranged from one to 20 years of experience. They had about 64% of the cases that were closed by their Mohs Fellow, which is in keeping with most academic practices, and about 36% that were closed by the Mohs attending. And um, I thought it was quite reassuring that those distances don't make a big difference. They only did linear closures. They did not do flaps or grafts, where the suture distance may have more of an impact on outcomes. 
and may potentially also impact the scar width. They also advocated for further studies as any good author should. I thought it was a very well done study and I applaud authors Winkle and Eisen. And the uh, co-authors as well. And the co-authors who are Harrington, Kang, and Armstrong, who's a lovely person. I know April. She's lovely. So as you mentioned, this is like the fourth in the series where the same group is basically doing the same thing, um, split scar studies with various surgical techniques, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. So as you pointed out, they did like how far apart can your sutures be? Doesn't matter if it's on the head and neck versus the extremities. They've done like 5-0 versus 6-0 FASCAT. And we've discussed a lot of them because I like challenging surgical dogma. And one of the um, surgical directors when I was in residency was Dr. Shimizu. And I think she was ahead of the game. She was like, you know what? I don't think any of this really matters that much. It'll be fine. And so I always think about the Shimizu school of thought being triumphant when I read these articles. <laughs> so they did have some small differences that didn't come out to statistical significance, but they did notice that they had um, suture reactions. Three patients on the two millimeter side had suture reactions with two hematomas, one superficial dehiscence, and um, one suture reaction and one infection. Um, that, those were seen on both sides of the wounds. The suture reactions were only seen on the two millimeter side. And I didn't know if that had something to do with the placement of the superficial sutures being somewhat close to the placement of the deeps and maybe introducing more inflammation or irritation around those, those sutures. I did think it was very interesting that there was really not a significant difference in the cosmesis. And I looked at the photographs presented in the article. Of course, the wounds looked very well closed, very nicely done. So I was, I was impressed with that and, and reassured by the fact that, you know, most of the time our skin is quite good at healing itself if we give it a fighting chance. Um, I like also that they highlighted the use of the setback um, sutures sort of skill set for placing the deeps. I, I really do like the setback sutures, which is um, actually kind of suturing with the entry and exit points of the buried stitch underneath the sort of skin flap, if you will, like at the point of undermining. I feel like that does a great job of closing dead space and also improving um, wound closure with no real tension on the wound edges. So that's a great technique. And um, if anybody is not familiar with that, there are some really lovely videos on that from different articles that Dr. Eisen has published previously. Is that what you might refer to as a deep plicating stitch? Plicating usually involves like fascia or a deeper structure. I thought that plicating was stitches are also quite useful. I think that the terms are sometimes used a little bit interchangeably, but my understanding is that the, the setback is specifically the technique where you're underneath the tissue like proper when you place both the entry point and the exit point of the deep stitch. Maybe I'll have to look at some of these videos. I'll make you a diagram. All right. So real quick, I just want to hit our last article because it's an updated recommendation from the CDC about the shingles vaccine. Um, the title is Use of Recombinant Zoster Vaccine in Immunocompromised Adults Aged 19 plus years, recommendations of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. This is in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, I guess. I don't know if that's really a publication, but it's a CDC communication. So the upshot is that this is a recommendation that all immunosuppressed 
if they're currently immunosuppressed or you're planning to immunosuppress them with one of your medications and they're grown up, they should get the shingles vaccine. So that's called Shingrix these days. It's a two-dose series. And originally it was approved for just adults age 50 plus. And now if you're planning to immunosuppress an adult, for example, with a JAK inhibitor, which we know has an increased risk of shingles, a lot of them do anyway, um, you want to give them the Shingrix vaccine, even if they're 20 years old. The Shingrix vaccine, by the way, is a two-shot series. They normally get it one to six months apart. Of course, I would recommend that they get the first one before you immunosuppress them. The authors seem to suggest they should complete the series, but I don't know if that's feasible for a lot of the people who are planning to use these medicines on. This recommendation comes from uh, evidence of vaccine safety and efficacy from about 15 studies of adults with various forms of immunosuppression. Interestingly, they also cite two economic studies that found that vaccination was cost-saving. It's pretty fun with a number needed to treat of 8 to 10. And you can get this vaccine along with other vaccines. You can get it if you're taking antiviral medications. That's totally fine. There's a quote in here. Persons with a history of herpes zoster should receive the vaccine. Now, I'm not sure if that means, again, if they fall into this immunosuppressed category, they should receive it. Like it shouldn't preclude them from getting it, or it just means anybody who has ever had zoster should also get the Shingrix vaccine. It's unclear. Anyway, if I had had shingles in the past, I would probably want to get this vaccine. And if my insurance said you're not approved, well, maybe I would have to then think about it more. In terms of pregnancy and breastfeeding, it says there's not really a recommendation regarding pregnancy. Therefore, you can consider delaying vaccination until after pregnancy. And then recombinant vaccines such as this Shingrix vaccine pose no risk to mothers who are breastfeeding or to their infants. At least they pose no known risk. So it seems like that would still be a good idea. That's all we've got today. Thanks so much for joining us, listeners. And thanks also to Dr. Fry, who informed me that that is actually how we pronounce her name. So sorry, I mispronounced it earlier. But thanks for that discussion about some aspects of the cosmetics industry I was unaware of and for the force behind empowering consumers. And today we also learned about hair growth medications, how maybe dutasteride is on top and finasteride and minoxidil are not too far behind. I still like the idea of some 5-alpha reductase inhibitor plus minoxidil to give you the best treatment outcomes possible. We learned about consensus guidelines for isotretinoin monitoring, ALT, and triglycerides before starting and once you hit max dose. We learned that suture distance from the edge of the wound doesn't matter, at least two millimeters versus five millimeters for scar outcomes. And we learned about Shingrix vaccines. Get your patients vaccinated before you immunosuppress them. I feel, for example, that if you're going to put somebody on a JAK inhibitor, they should get the Shingrix vaccine first if they're age 19 or over anyways. And then we know about all of our other immunosuppressive medications. Thanks also to our institutions, of course. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. And thank you to Morgan Dykeman, member of Team Dermosphere and medical student extraordinaire who keeps our social media accounts moving along. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's the other one. You can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which includes our entire archives as well as links to all of the original articles and is another good way to get in touch with us. And if you really can't get enough of us, you can also listen to us on our other podcast, which is called SkinCast. It's aimed at the general public and are small bite-sized pieces of information, usually sort of like 12 to 16 minutes 
something you can perhaps tell your patients about if they have eczema or psoriasis, you can say, hey, I know this great podcast. And there you go. We'd be happy to have you join us over there as well. That's all for today, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you in two weeks. Thank you.